Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. It's episode 251. Yes, uh, we just had our big 250 episode last week. Yes. Um, though this could have been episode 250. We we played around a little with our typical rules um, to make the blob episode 250 but we could have just as easily made today's movie episode 250 well what are we watching today today we are watching i married a monster from outer space from 1958 directed by gene fowler jr are you calling me a monster from outer space oh um no that's probably me i'm probably the monster from outer space (laughs) i mean from the between the two of us i'm the more weird one I think. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me about the people who made this movie. Sure. So the name Gene Fowler Jr. should be a little bit familiar to you. Yeah. Um, he was born in 1917 in Denver, Colorado. He was the son of a famous author and journalist named Gene Fowler. Sure. And uh, Gene Fowler Jr. got his start in the business as an editor uh, beginning in 1935. Throughout the 40s, he was known for working with director Fritz Lang. However, by the 1950s, he was looking to move into directing. Um, So after having done some like directing on television, doing some television episodes, he accepted the job to direct I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Mm -hmm. Um, And he assumed that no one would ever see that movie. How wrong he was. Yes. When it made $2 million at the box office, it was a surprise to basically everyone except maybe producer Herman Cohen. Now, instead of returning to direct I Was a Teenage Frankenstein or any of the other AIP teenage monster movies, Fowler figured that he would get a bigger piece of the pie if he produced his own follow-up independently. So he partnered with a writer named uh, Louis Witz, who was someone who had just written for TV at that point. And Fowler and Witz decided to use sort of another title inspired by magazine confessionals. So while it's not I Was a Teenage Blank, it's still in that vein. Vein, yeah, with I Was a Teenage Werewolf or... I Walked with a Zombie. Exactly, exactly. That whole subgenre. And like... We've run into a few of these in horror, but there was like a ton of these in all kinds of genres. I think there was one year where a movie called I Married an Angel and a movie called I Married a Devil came out. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I Married a Communist, um, just like lots of these kinds of movies uh, with these sorts of titles. So because of his track record with I Was a Teenage Werewolf, uh, Fowler managed to get the support of Paramount Pictures with a $125,000 budget. Not much, but a big increase over Teen Werewolf's $82,000. Yeah. Basically, this was treated as an independent production with Fowler in charge, but it was produced in-house at Paramount. So Fowler had access to like all of the on-contract Paramount talent, Um, But he had a lot of, like, creative freedom because it was basically just treated as, like, yeah, here's some money, go off and do it. Sure. And the fact that it's produced in-house probably explains why it was considered the 
a picture of the double feature. Yes, uh, you've got it entirely. Now, because of this increased creative freedom, Louis Witz became very protective over his screenplay, very resistant to any changes um, because there was no one forcing him to make changes. Basically, the only request that Paramount made was that the aliens had to glow. Do you know why that was a request? No clue. Might have been just because their visual effects guy wanted to like try out a new glowing effect or something like that. Okay. Um, so that was really the only studio note he got. Um, so much to the consternation of the cast, um, Vitz became very much like, you have to say every word exactly as it is in the screenplay, um, which most movie writers don't get a chance to be that protective. Yeah, well, I don't think it's good to be that protective. I understand being protective of your creative work, but, you know, the, if there's a difference between someone saying a line of like, why I oughta, rather than like, well, I ought to smack you. Right, like, sure. I don't know. Uh, speaking of that cast, the film's male lead is Tom Tyron, a man who did not have a good time as an actor. Oh, no. Um, he was born in 1926 in Hartford, Connecticut. He came from like something of like a wealthy, like New England family. His father was a clothier and like Tyron went to Yale and things like this. And he had acted on Broadway in the early 1950s before arriving in Hollywood on April 1st, 1955, uh, perhaps an omen of things to come. <laughs> he signed a long-term contract with Paramount, uh, but mostly just appeared on television or in small roles. Um, very rarely was he the lead. Here we see him as the lead in a, you know, 125K mm -hmm. production. Um, his co-stars on this film remembered him as being cordial, but aloof, and that he, like, hated making this movie. Okay. From 1958 to 1961, he starred as Texas John Slaughter in a series of Disney TV movies about the historical Confederate cowboy and killer of indigenous and Mexican peoples in Arizona and New Mexico. So apt last name, Slaughter? I guess. I mean, like, in the context of American culture at the time and these Disney TV movies, it's more of like a, I'm a hero cowboy fighting those bad engines kind of thing, right? But, sure. But um, in the context of reality. Sure. <laughs> he finally got a starring role in an A picture, The Cardinal, in 1963. It was a big hit, and Tyron was nominated for a Golden Globe, but the production was a harrowing one for Tyron. It basically broke him. Um, he spent that whole shoot being harassed, bullied, and humiliated by the film's director, Otto Preminger. Preminger insulted and terrorized Tyron, um, including an incident where he invited Tyron's parents to the set, fired Tyron in front of them, and then rehired Tyron after his parents had left. Is this a, like, director trying to do something here, or he was just picking on his actor? I don't really know. I'm not super familiar with the Cardinal. Um, from what I understand, the goal was to make Tyron feel humiliated all the time. But I don't really know if that was a goal just because Preminger didn't like him, or if it was a goal for, like, some sort of wild creative reason. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Either way, 
bad. Awful. Yes. So disillusioned with acting, uh, Tyron retired in 1969 and became a novelist. Um, specifically like a horror novelist. Oh, um, he wrote horror novels like The Other and Harvest Home, both of which were adapted into films. And while he had had like a brief unsuccessful marriage in the 1950s, um, after he retired as an actor and became a novelist, he lived openly as a gay man in the 1970s until his death in 1991 of HIV-related stomach cancer. Tyron's mm. co-star in this film is actress Gloria Talbot, who is mostly known for like supporting roles in big pictures like All That Heaven Allows, where she plays Jane Wyman's daughter. Haven't we seen her before? Yes, we saw her in The Daughter of Dr. Jekyll, right. where she was the, the, daughter, the daughter of Dr. Jekyll. Yes. <laughs> um, she also appeared in the Burt I. Gordon giant monster movie, The Cyclops, which was like on the same devil bill with Daughter of Dr. Jekyll. Talbot enjoyed working on this movie, although she did recall it to be a hectic and tense atmosphere on set. But she grew frustrated with Louis Witz hanging around um, to make sure that his dialogue was read word for word. I guess he would like stand by the camera and like watch the actors like in every take. And like if they like flubbed a line, it was like, nope, you got to do it again. And it's like, who's directing this picture, my dude? Yeah. Co-stars in the cast include actor Ty Hungerford. Um, who was born Orison Whipple Hungerford Jr. in 1930. That's a long name. Yes. He was a former college football star and army lieutenant who was scouted by Paramount and appeared in a number of films for them throughout 1958. Then he was poached from Paramount by Warner Brothers, who brought him over and changed his name to Ty Harden. Uh, Warners then cast him as Bronco Lane, a kind of... um like replacement lead character for the TV series Cheyenne during a contract dispute with the series lead Clint Walker. When Walker returned to the show, Harden was given a spin-off series Bronco, which ran from 1958 to 1962. Good for him, man. TV's <laughs> TV's great. That's what you want. Yeah. One of the minor actresses in this movie, Jean Carson, uh, would go on to greater notability as one of the fun girls on the Andy Griffith show. Um, basically it was a set of two characters who were like from the big city who would occasionally come into the small town of Maybury for some fun and kind of like caused like trouble for the sheriff's office. Okay. Steve London an air force engineer turned actor uh, appears in this film. He would gain greater notoriety playing wiretap specialist Jack Rossman on the TV series The Untouchables from 1959 to 1963. And he actually became a lawyer after his acting career faded. Like went back to school or he already had the schooling under his belt and he just like passed the bar exam? No, his schooling was as a... Um, like, like engineer. Like in... Like he got like officer training yeah. for his schooling. His schooling was through the armed forces yeah then in a sort of like almost a cameo role in this movie we have famous ex-boxer turned character actor and nightclub owner maxi rosenbaum aka slapsy maxi all right because he slaps you around yeah he was like a pretty famous boxer in the 1930s he pioneered a style of boxing called peekaboo boxing sure um and then yeah after retiring he became a character actor and he owned a nightclub called slapsy maxis okay <laughs> and he plays a bartender in this movie 
The film's aliens uh, were created by Charles Gemera. Uh, once <laughs> any relation to uh, the giant flying turtle no no relation to Gamera or to Gamora from Guardians of the Galaxy no this is Charles Gamera the once prolific gorilla suit actor oh right um, who we know quite well yes um, by the 1950s he had sold off his gorilla suit as we've talked about in previous episodes and he had actually transitioned into special effects makeup he had previously created the aliens for war of the worlds right the film's visual effects are by john p fulton who for years was the head of the special effects department at universal uh, he worked on all the classic horror movies there most notably the invisible man and its sequels in 1953, he had moved over to Paramount. Um, he worked on a number of Hitchcock films at Paramount, like Rear Window and Vertigo. And in 1956, he won an Oscar for his work on The Ten Commandments with the Parting of the Red Sea sequence. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I figured. Now, Fulton wasn't the only Hitchcock collaborator working on this film, um, as it was edited by George Tomasini, uh, who innovated the art of editing on Hitchcock films like Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, The Man Who Knew Too Much, the 1956 version, Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, mm -hmm. The Birds, and Marnie. Um, he also edited the 1960 version of The Time Machine, the 1961 The Misfits, uh, the 1962 version of Cape Fear, and In Harm's Way in 1965. His career was cut tragically short, however, when he passed away of a heart attack in 1964. Oh, dang. Yeah, unfortunate. So I married a monster from outer space. Did you? Was really? <laughs> Sh should I meet this person? <laughs> I married a monster from outer space was released on September 10th, 1968. Originally, as we mentioned, as the A picture to the blob. And you hit the nail on the head. That's because the blob was an indie picture that had been bought by Paramount, whereas this was an in-house production. However, it soon became clear that the blob, with its color photography and catchy theme song, was the draw to theaters, whereas the more like somber black and white I Married a Monster from Outer Space was like not quite as much what audiences were coming to see, so it was bumped down to the B-movie position. How do theaters or I guess like studios determine which one was the bigger draw? Because they're playing at the same time. Yeah, um, I'm not 100% sure, just because this is like an era of yeah. releasing that I'm not, that like doesn't exist anymore. I suspect it has something to do with the fact that like people coming up to the box office and saying, hey, can I get a ticket for the blob? Sure. You know, um, way more than they're coming up and saying, hey, I want a ticket for I Married a Monster from Outer Space. Might just because the blob is a shorter title. Who knows? Now, contemporary reviews of this film were positive, if somewhat condescending, due to the genre and title. The special effects, screenplay, acting, and cinematography were all subjects of praise. In later years, the film has become something of a cult favorite, um, again, thanks to the lurid title, and it remains well-regarded today. Okay. The film's sexual politics have been subject to, like, a lot of analysis um, from all kinds of different angles. This movie's been analyzed from like an anti-communist angle, a proto-feminist angle, an anti-marriage angle, um, the idea of like homosexual subtext, like whatever your thesis is on, you can probably watch this movie and like 
get something out of it, I guess. So that probably means that they aren't trying to say one specific thing. People are pulling what they want from it. Probably. We'll see. Um, True. See what uh, academic analyses (laughs) we can generate uh, on this movie's themes. Oh, just you wait, Ben. (laughs) I did a communications master's degree. I can make gold from shit no matter what. (laughs) So um, if you're wanting to watch along with us today, I Married a Monster from Outer Space is available on DVD. Uh, and it is also on iTunes, Google Play, and on YouTube. Okay. If it's on YouTube, that means that you can find it on our YouTube playlist, which you will find on our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss I Married a Monster from Outer Space from 1958, directed by Gene Fowler Jr. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching I Married a Monster from Outer Space from 1958, directed by Gene Fowler Jr. Sarah, what'd you think? Pretty dang good. Yeah, right? Yeah, a surprisingly good movie. I can see why it invites so much analysis. Yes. Like, in the context of 1950s gender politics, which is... Always everyone's like favorite thing um, to go to go to. Yeah. Like sociological analysis topic. Um, and then given the like metatextual element of the casting, um, this is a very interesting movie. Yeah. Speaking of casting, I believe you were calling the male lead Tom Tyron. Yeah. I screwed up. His name is Tryon. Yeah. Tryon. Yeah. yeah I, I, I mixed up when I was uh, talking about him in the intro. I can see why Tom Tryon did not enjoy making this movie um, because his own marriage to Anne Noyes uh, fell apart the same year this was made. And like playing a character who is living a lie in his marriage, like must have been difficult. I mean, as always, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I think he plays well. I think he does a really good job here. Yes. Um, but, you know, it, it was probably a situation where it was like, maybe this is hitting a little too close to home for him. Well, how about I give the plot synopsis? Mm-hmm. Um, it is on the longer side, mm-hmm. but I think it's all worth it. Okay. So we open and it's a bachelor's party. It's one last night of freedom, as they say, literally in the movie, which yeah. is like great. Love hearing that shit. Yeah, lots of um, old-fashioned, like... Old ball and chain. uh, Hack stand-up comedian jokes about marriage at the start of this movie. Yeah, uh, throughout the movie, let's be serious. Mm. Um, But our bridegroom, his name is Bill, and uh, he's, you know, he's excited to be married. And he decides to actually head home early so he can swing by his fiancée's place. Uh, Her name is Marge, because he wants to say goodnight. Which is so sweet. But as he is driving, he sees a man lying in the middle of the road. 
And so he stops um, and he actually stops a little too late. He does kind of like hit the body on yeah. the road. I mean, it does look like it was maybe already dead, but yes. yes. But he gets out and there's no one there. And then a glowing monster comes up from behind him and he freaks out and then smoke engulfs him. Smoke like that uh, lost smoke monster. Right. Um, only better effects here. Mm. Let's be serious. It's the next day and Bill is late to the wedding. Everyone is waiting. Marge is worried. But Bill shows up. The wedding happens and bride Marge is over the moon. But she begins to notice Bill seems to be acting a little odd. Um, they leave immediately to go to their honeymoon, which is like a long drive to like the seaside. And he is driving around at night without his headlights on because he seems to be able to like see at night right now. Very strange. He doesn't recognize what thunder is. He asks her what that is and seems like fascinated by the lightning. Uh, and he also just seems to like stop drinking. And this is the 50s, like everyone's drinking, <laughs> like it's that that's a thing. But, you know, they have their honeymoon. They embrace fade to black one year later. And we see in a letter that Marge is writing to her mom that she later like destroys because she doesn't want to like share this intimate detail. But she admits in this letter that Bill doesn't seem to be like the man that she fell in love with. He seems distant, cold, doesn't really show any kind of affection and honestly, he seems like a stranger. And this is the beginning of the, what I'll call barely disguised subtext of this movie's allegory. Yes. We do see that Marge is going to the doctor um, because she's like, it's been a year and I'm not pregnant yet. Can I have children? And her doctor's like, you're good to go, Marge, but maybe have Bill stop by. She brings this up to Bill and she's a little nervous about doing it. And Bill, you know, doesn't go on like a rampage or anything, but he's clearly like upset at the idea that something might be wrong with him and is like, yeah, I'll go. But is clearly like hesitant about going to see the doctor. So like I said, it's one year later, so it's their anniversary. And as a present, Marge gets Bill a dog. Uh, he grew up with dogs. He must love dogs, right? Well, this dog does not love him. He immediately is growling and barking and trying to bite at Bill. So they put the dog in the basement. Uh, and this is when the movie got like really uncomfortable for me because it's like in the dark, in the fucking basement. They don't even leave a light on for this dog. They have a little like dish for water but it's on the shortest leash i've ever seen tied up in the corner yeah it's like tied to like a workbench or something with yeah like the leash has got to be like a foot and a half maybe yeah it's 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 bad yeah it's it's definitely bad like yeah this will definitely calm the dog down so bill goes down to like try to make friends with the dog uh but actually ends up killing it by trying to make it stop barking. Marge overhears this and rushes down, and Bill gives the excuse of, uh, well, his collar was too tight. He choked himself to death. Either way, a terrible way to go. Oh, my God. So, yes, the dog does die. Mm -hmm. um, he's introduced and then killed off right away. 
Throughout this time, we are seeing that other men in town are being attacked by smoke and seemingly replaced, including Bill's friend Sam, uh, some police officers, etc. So one night, you know, Bill goes out on a late night walk and Marge follows because she's been very concerned about the way he's been behaving, especially after the death of the dog. She hears him uh, kill a cat uh, and then he heads to the forest. She follows and then sees basically Bill standing in front of a spaceship. Smoke leaves his body and forms into the glowing creature we saw at the very beginning. And then that creature walks into the spaceship. Marge goes to Bill's body, but he is just like a shell. And he actually ends up falling and like a bug crawls on his face. And so Marge freaks out because like, what is going on? She frantically manages to get back to town and she sees that there's a local dive bar open. So she immediately goes in kind of like Maurice in Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> um, and no one believes her. One guy starts hitting on her because she is in her nightgown with just a coat on. But he's a real creep about it. He's a super real creep about it. And frankly, the fact that she's in her nightgown with like a house robe on and like no shoes should should indicate that something is wrong. Yeah. When she comes in and she's like screaming and hysterical and is like, someone, please help me. Someone, you got to believe me. The fact that like the bartender's like, oh, she must be drunk. And this creep is like, hey, baby, what's your number? It's like, holy shit. Yeah. This town, it's called Norrisville. Norrisville. Yeah, uh, they're not good people. Well, um, let's put a pin in that, file it under barely concealed subtext and allegory and come back to it later. (laughs) Marge leaves the local dive bar um, and then heads to Chief of Police. Um, I forget his name. Chief Collins. Chief Collins. And she's like, you have to believe me. And he's like... Well, I believe you saw something. I don't know if what you saw was actually a spaceship, but don't tell anyone because you don't want them to know yeah, that it, you've, you've seen something. Yeah. If, if what you say is true, you got to be careful. Yeah. So she leaves and she goes back home. And then we see that Chief Collins has been taken over as well. The gasp. So now the tension moves from Marge trying to engage with Bill, who's being cold, to Marge now living with this, like, monster, and she can't tell anyone. At one point, she tries to... At one point, uh, we see that Sam, uh, Bill's friend who's been taken over, gets engaged to his longtime girlfriend, Helen, and Helen's like, yeah, finally begged him. Marge goes to her and says, you shouldn't marry him because something weird is going on. And she tries to tell her, but she goes through with the marriage anyways. And Bill goes to March and is like, what were you trying to tell Helen? And she's like, nothing, nothing. Don't worry about it. What I think is important about that scene is that Marge has no reason to believe that like Sam has been taken over. She basically knows that Bill has been taken over, but she's warning Helen as a kind of like just in case. Yeah. Like she doesn't know... How many men are monsters, but your man might be a monster. So maybe don't rush into marrying him. And she does. She, Helen rushes right in. Mm -hmm. Now it's been some time later 
and uh, everyone's going to the beach. Um, Bill, Marge, Sam, Helen, everyone. And there's a boating accident. And Sam falls overboard and he nearly drowns. They bring him to the shore um, and a doctor's there and he gives Sam some oxygen. And the oxygen kills him. He was alive when he was on shore and even the doctor is flabbergasted. It seems like the oxygen really did kill him. Now, of course, Bill and another friend of theirs who has been turned um, share a look that, like, that's how they get killed. Right, yeah, like oxygen uh, is toxic to them. Yeah. I think based on some dialogue in a different scene about how they've improved the bodies, um, that they breathe methane? Yeah. Yeah. That night, Marge confronts Bill. She's like... Sam died because of oxygen. I I know that you aren't human. Mm-hmm. So Bill explains, we are aliens from Andromeda. We had to leave our planet because our sun was collapsing or something. It was giving off radiation. And as we were, as a race, preparing to leave and travel through space, uh, the radiation ended up killing all of our women. Just all women dead. Still we left and, you know, we want to be able to continue our race. So we want to be able to have kids. Um, and right now we are, are trying to change our DNA basically so we can procreate with humans. And Marge is like, she's said before that she wants kids, right? And so she's like, but when you have kids with humans, what will they be? And Bill's like, they would be like us. Mm -hmm. And this is too much for Marge. She, like, can't take it. She runs out. She goes back to Chief Collins. He again is like, no, don't worry about it, because she doesn't know he's turned yet. She tries to call Washington, D.C. All lines to Washington are busy. Uh, She tries to send a telegram. The telegram man rips it up. Uh, she tries to leave town. Uh, the road is out because it's been washed away from the rain that we haven't had. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these things. Are you going to talk about what happens to that creep? I forgot to mention what happens to that creep. So this is before Sam drowns. But the creep is like hanging out around Marge's house. Yeah, even more creep than you thought he was. Yeah. So... Here's the thing about the aliens. Um, They can periodically send telepathic messages to other aliens. Um, So Bill sees this creep outside. He doesn't know what's going on. So he radios in for the (laughs) cop aliens to come over. And so they stop the creep. And the creep's like, yeah, I mean, like, listen, I'll give it to you straight, Coppa. Uh, She was in here raving like a lunatic. And I thought maybe, like, I would just follow her home. And uh, next time she came running out, I would be here to, uh... Be here. Be here for things. And the cops are like, do you have a permit for the gun you're carrying? We're going to take you downtown. Now, Creep pulls a gun on a police officer. Keep in mind, uh, it's like, it is night. In the suburbs. But yes, in the suburbs, he pulls a gun on a cop in a small town and he's like, what you going to do about it, copper? And he like plugs the cop and nothing happens. And the cop's just like smiling at him. So they like knock out the creep. 
the two cops turn to each other and they're like, do you think we can use him? Nah, probably not. And then shoot him point blank. Oh yeah, like exit, like mob execution, like back of the head, like yeah, yeah. It's- and it's right outside. Marge wakes up from it, and Bill's been watching this the whole time, and he's like, "Don't worry, dear. It's just a car backfiring." Yeah. So this whole subplot is wild because a, it's super unpleasant. Yeah. I mean, it's a horror movie, Ben. Sure. B, it's totally not necessary to the plot. Like, you could cut it all out and you wouldn't notice it was gone. So its only real purpose is thematic. And I'll talk about it later, I guess, when we get to that stuff. But I I really just want to, like, run down what this creep thinks, like, (laughs) acceptable behavior is. Like, one, a lady comes into a bar downtown wearing nothing but a nightgown and a house robe. And you think, I'll hit on this chick. Two, when that doesn't work, you follow her home and then just, like, hang around in case she happens to leave the house. Three, when some police are like, hey, what the fuck are you doing hanging around this house? He's like, hey, there's no law against hanging around. Like, what are you going to take me in on, cop? And when they're like, I don't know, do you have a permit for your gun? You pull a gun and point blank shoot this police officer. Like, how is this guy not already in jail if this is kind of like his thought processes? Like, yeah, I would rather shoot a cop than be brought downtown over whether I have a permit, you know, maybe pay a mild fine and then go about my day. Yeah, yeah, it's... (laughs) He also is wearing, like, an all-black suit with, like, a white white tie tie. and, like, a fedora. And I'm like, are you the mob? I think he's supposed to be. (laughs) Yeah. I would not be surprised if he took out a dime and started, you know, twirling it in his hand. Yeah, exactly. Anyways. So Marge is running out of options. Finally, she heads to her doctor, like, the only other person in authority she can think of to go to. And he ends up actually believing her. And he's like, well, why didn't you think that I was one of them? And she's like, I had to take that chance. No one else believes me or they've already been turned. So they're like, okay, well, how are we going to be able to tell like taken guys from like non-taken guys? And just then they pass the maternity ward where one of Bill's friends who has not been taken is celebrating the birth of his twin girls. And they're like, ah, I know where I can find real red-blooded Americans, the maternity ward. So the doctor rallies these men. They head off to the forest, and one of them even brings two German shepherd hunting dogs. They manage to get to the ship, and these glowing creatures come out. I should kind of describe them a little bit. They're basically wearing jumpsuits and have kind of like a Cthulhu face. Yeah, yeah. That's... And they're glowing. Yeah. Oh, and like like tentacly hands i think they might um it's hard to tell uh i think they might even be wearing like some sort of um like breathing apparatus uh on their faces it it is very hard to tell yeah but anyways these dudes come out as the i'll call them hunters are arriving uh the hunters try unloading their rifles and pistols no dice yeah if you've seen one of these movies you know the situation of course the aliens do have ray guns yes and uh, they just evaporate you vaporize they vaporize you yeah uh so a dude the dude with the dogs lets them loose and these dogs are smart rather than just straight up attacking they crawl 
army crawl to get at the surprise, one manages to like bite off like a tentacle or maybe external artery or breathing tube or something. Like I said, it's a little hard to tell. Uh, and it kills that alien. Um, and then the dog and that alien are probably vaporized by another alien. But remember, there's two dogs. <laughs> so that second dog gets that second alien. And after the alien dies, he dissolves into star jelly. Yeah, the alien deaths are like actually like surprisingly gruesome. Yeah. Like for one thing, when the dogs like rip the tubes off or whatever, there's like spurts of some sort of dark liquid that might be alien blood or something else. And then, yeah, they like <laughs> they melt into goo. Yeah, they're glowing stops as mm -hmm. well. It's it's pretty neat. Now, as the hunters were arriving, the aliens that were in the ship did their little, like, radio beacon over to the men in town. So Bill, the cops, they're on their way to come serve as backup to the aliens. But before they can get there, the hunters enter the spaceship and they see all the men that have been taken over strung up just along the walls. Yeah, like almost like they're on meat hooks or something. Yeah, and then at their feet, they're connected to some kind of, like, technical apparatus or equipment and the doctor's like ah these are broadcasting equipment so that like aliens can maintain the form and the the emotion impulses thought processes whatever yeah because they're clearly like drawing on the memories of the people they've taken over so that um they can function in society and stuff right yeah um i you know it is good to note that this is the first time in the movie where it's clear that like a the aliens aren't possessing the actual human bodies mm -hmm. that they just have these like shells that they've created and b that the humans who have been taken over are like still alive yes. and can be saved uh so they unplug the humans and we see with the two police officers that those aliens die and dissolve into star jelly but bill manages to make his way now Marge is also making her way. Marge and Bill have one last encounter where Bill laments like, but I was learning to love. And yeah. then he dies and turns into star jelly. Yeah, it probably goes without saying that this movie has like a healthy dose of like the aliens don't have emotions and like, what is this thing you humans call love? Like, yeah. Now we also see we cut back to Chief Collins. He pulls out a high tech radio and he's like, Earth invasion has failed. Destroy scout ship. All of our alien people here have been destroyed. Uh, and he radios that just before he himself is destroyed. Um, the ship explodes uh, just as everyone gets out, including the real Bill. And Bill and Marge have a, a loving embrace. And just as the uh, the end text comes up we see in orbit just tons of ships just tons leaving orbit being like get the fuck out peace <laughs> we'll find a planet that you know is into monster sex exactly yeah. i mean that is earth <laughs> that is earth but maybe they needed to wait like 30 years right yeah they saw that creature from the Black Lagoon had come out and people were like into monsters. So they're right. like, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe this place. And then it was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, yes, that's the end. Yeah. So before we even get into like the subtext. Yeah. 
this movie is just very well made. Mm -hmm. Um, It has some of the least effective day for night I've seen in a long time. But other than that, overall, the cinematography, the editing and the visual effects are all like quite top notch. It's so good. It's unique, exciting. They're pushing boundaries. They saw an opportunity to experiment in a like in a studio picture that no one gives a fuck about. Right. And they took it and they fucking nailed it. Yeah. It really goes to show what access to top-notch talent can do for a director. Yeah. Because like, you know, here's the director on his like second feature film coming off of like this cheap AIP movie that was a success no one expected. And he's working with, you know, a studio cinematographer, a studio editor, a studio visual effects supervisor, and getting, you know, just all this awesome stuff, right? We open with a crane shot. We get that same crane shot, but from a different angle. Mm -hmm. So they had to, like, reset up everything. Like, they took time and effort to do things. There's a lot of really cool, like, scene transitions. Yes, very, very cool. Cool ways to like do scene transitions to show the passage of time as well. Yeah. Great, like shadowy cinematography. Yes. Um, and yeah, the visual effects are just really cool. Like that, the thing with the smoke. Yeah. I, I want to know how they did this. Um, I mean, I know how they put the smoke in, but the smoke completely envelops the dude mm-hmm. and then it disappears and the dude is gone, but it doesn't seem like we've changed that original shot Mm -hmm. so it's as if like they kept rolling but then as the smoke was like enveloping they someone off screen was like just pulling the dude out of the way that's the only thing i can think of but it's really well done yeah they probably locked off the camera um you know buddy like probably actually just like got up and walked away they made sure that there was nothing else moving in the shot and they probably just you know cut it together and you just had this background plate that wouldn't have changed at all and you're overlaying the smoke on top of that and the smoke is providing so much motion in the frame and there's no other motion in the frame that if you locked the camera off well enough you just wouldn't notice the cut in the shot at all but it's the cutting off well enough yes exactly it's it's taking the time to do that right Mm -hmm. when it's like a simple trick to do but you know nobody a lot of times people don't take the time to do it very well. So there'll be like a jitter or a bounce because the camera's position has maybe changed slightly between the two cuts, right? But the smoke is a very clever element though because it attracts your attention. So even if there was some sort of jitter, you're not looking at it. You're looking at the smoke, um, which is also just like a really cool Mm -hmm. visual effect. And behind the smoke, because that's like a layer on top, right? Mm -hmm. Behind the smoke, they actually fade So the guy looks like he's disappearing. He doesn't just like blip out. Yes. So there is a lot of editing and layers going on in just those one shots. Yeah. And you have to remember, like, this is an era when each pass, each layer of that image, like, is having to be optically printed. Yes. On top of each other layer, like, literally. And when you do that you're losing picture quality so you can only really do that so many times before like things start to look janky um yeah that smoke looks crisp yeah it's really really well done with the smoke the alien costumes look really cool it uh you know it has a little bit of a, a wolfman feel of just like a dude in a suit with like a face mask on but the glowing effects and like 
some of the other things that they've done to kind of take care with it make it kind of work. But I will say that, you know, it is a little... It, it's a little bit of a weak point, I think. From the neck down, they're not that interesting because yeah. they're wearing like jumpsuits. But I think the head design is cool. It's the yeah. first time we've gotten sort of like a like Cthulhu type of design. Yeah, like tentacle faced monster kind of thing going on. And they're smart enough to actually like um, like clearly they wetted down the costumes to give yeah. them a more organic look, which was really smart. The transitions when they die and turn into the star jelly is really well done. I love that we're just throwing the words star jelly around as much as we can now that we know it's a thing. Yeah, well, I mean, it makes sense. Sure, like, sure. No one knows what it is. It could be the remains of like these like yeah. monsters. I, I really <laughs> wonder like what that material was, like what they made the goo out of, because in black and white, it's really easy to like hide that kind of stuff because it looks like it could be like one of two things either like oatmeal with like some some glitter in it or something or it also kind of reminds me of um like soap suds oh sure yeah um or when it's got like a bit more um body to it it sort of looks like melting slurpee sure yeah yeah i feel like they must have done like a combination of things yeah because they do a really good job of showing it like melting out of people's clothing mm -hmm. and the clothing maintains its shape as it deforms into nothing you right. know they do a few different things and i think that's why it looks so good yeah so i mean you know ultimately this is like a very well-made movie the score is all library music yes but it's like different library <laughs> what i mean by different library music is um if you look at who contributed to the score you got like a bunch of different guys it's not just like universal reaching into wolfman again and again yeah, and yeah, again yeah. you know we have a range of different things and they are being used to match the emotion that's going on on screen it's not just like yeah so in the bomb 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 right bomb, yeah. bomb, 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 bomb. no wait that's star trek <laughs> yes you're doing Star Trek there, not Wolfman. Um, but, you know, so we've seen this mind control human replacement plot what feels like half a dozen times yes. by now. Um, there's even the standard scene of, like, not being able to call outside of the town or get a telegram outside of the town, which I think is in, like, every one of these. But what makes it smart is the... POV. Yes. Right? Like we are with Marge the whole movie and she's the one experiencing the horror. Like there's been past episodes we've talked about where we've identified that like the movies aren't from the right POV, right? Yeah. Like oh, this would be horror if they told it from the woman's point of view, but because it's from the man's point of view, it it's not as horrific as it could be. We've said that like a lot of different times. And here we are with Marge um, she's the one experiencing things. And the far out premise of this movie is that Marge lives in a world where the man she married isn't the one she fell in love with, where any man around her could be a monster and there's no way to tell until it's too late. And she can't depend on any authority figures to believe or help her because they might just be defending the man monsters. You know, so subtext. Barely yes. there. Yes. What do you think the subtext is, though? Because as you pointed out, people have taken that, you know, identification that there is subtext and placed it to like 
uh, a proto-feminist, uh, mm-hmm. anti-marriage, anti-communism. You know, I want to know what you took from this movie. So I didn't really see any like Cold War communism shit in this um, other than like, oh, you know, they're monsters and they look like us or whatever, like the same generic bullshit we get in all the other mind control alien movies. I feel like that's the influence of Invasion of the Body Snatchers because that was explicitly. Yes. The thing about this is the homosexual subtext read is largely because like Tom Tryon was homosexual Mm -hmm. and we have him as this character who like his marriage isn't working because he like just can't connect with his wife. Um, And he spends most of his time like hanging out with his guy friends who also can't connect with their wives. So I can see that. Um, I don't really think that's part of what the movie's talking about. I do think that that truth of Tryon's life is um, contributing to the effectiveness of his performance, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I really am curious to know, like, if Paramount knew that he was gay, because the thing is, um, if you were gay in Hollywood in the 50s and you weren't out about it, which means you're most of the gay people in Hollywood in the 50s, very few people out in the 50s. Um, but if you weren't out, that doesn't necessarily mean that, like, the studio didn't know you were gay. In fact, it was probably in the best interests of the studio to know you were gay so that they could best control your image and prevent anyone else from finding out. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would be really interested to know if the studio knew and if that played a part in his casting in any way. My hunch is that they didn't because it's not like Tom Tryon was... Burt Lancaster. Yeah. Rock Hudson. Yeah. You know, he is kind of a bit player. He's finally getting a leading role here. He has the looks to be Burt Lancaster. <laughs> Let's be serious. But he hasn't gained the recognition from the studio for them to even care about controlling his image. Yeah. Tom Tryon looks like he should be on the cover of a pulp magazine. Like he looks like he should be painted. Um, he has like perfect square jaw, perfect coiffed hair, broad shoulders, tight shirts, tall, dark, handsome. Like he is immensely beautiful. And then he just has this like troubled nature to him, which really works well for the role. Yes. Um, That's why that's the Burt Lancaster. There's a reason (laughs) why uh, he works so well in Sweet Smell of Success, but I'm diverging from what we are supposed to be talking about. Yes. So... Tom Tryon is good in this movie. Um, I think his performance has enough pathos that even though his like whole, our race is dying, so we needed yours speech is very old hat, like just as old hat as the mind control plot. Um, You almost feel sorry for the aliens, even as they're being destroyed at the end, because he's managed to like invest Bill with some pathos. Yeah, he really shows that he's like, understanding emotions now (laughs) yeah but because the movie's not from his pov because the movie's decided to be from marge's pov i think that the read i have on this movie is more of a feminist read like you know the best way i can think of to label what i think this movie is about even though it's like chronologically inappropriate is like this is a me too movie Mm. like this is a movie about the fact that like any man around you could be a monster. Not all men, but you can't know for certain. You know, you think you can trust your godfather, who's the chief of police, and he's really 
assuring you that nothing's wrong, but he's actually protecting the monsters who are in your town, who are all the men in your town. And I think that's why the creep subplot is here because it yeah. doesn't give anything else to this movie other than to say like, Hey, not all men are monsters, but also men don't have to be monsters to be shitty. Yes, you're totally right about me too. Um, as far as their marriage goes, I was reading more of a domestic violence situation. Your partner doesn't have to hit you for it to be an abusive relationship. Yeah, and Marge has a lot of behaviors that she's modeling that are sort of akin to like the trapped spouse kind of thing of like, I know I need to get out of here, but I can't without help and no one is helping. And so I just sort of live every day in this house in fear. Yeah, the acts of violence that Bill does at one point, he crushes a lighter um, after, you know, he hides the fact that he's done this and it's, um, but he does it after Marge suggests he sees a doctor. Um, and so he's like, you know, growing stressed. He kills the dog uh, and it's quite like, you know, you don't see it, but you hear enough that it's like a challenging scene. For sure. And like she's, you know, doing the thing where she's like tiptoeing around him for fear of how he'll react. She even outright says. says it when she's telling him he should go to the doctor where she's like struggling to get it out. And he's like, come on, Marge, like out with it. What are you trying to tell me? And she even says, yeah, like I can't predict how you're going to react to anything these days. And certainly... That whole idea of, like, the man I married isn't the man I fell in love with, um, you know, is a similar refrain to what you hear from people in relationships like that, where it's like, you know, people don't marry abusive spouses on purpose most of the time. It's like, oh, well, now that I'm living with you and we're together every day, suddenly, you know, I'm seeing this other side of you that you were taking trouble not to present to me before. Yeah. At the very, like, I'll say like, uh, black and white kind of depiction of a typical domestic violence situation. It's a very whirlwind romance. You get married and then suddenly that partner is different. Mm -hmm. Um, something's just a little off. They're not as say loving or affectionate. Um, they'll still present just fine uh, when you're with other people, but just something seems off. And then sometimes things will go a little too far, like incidences of violence, um, of destroying something, typically destroying your things, and then apologizing like, oh, I didn't mean it. I love you so much. Don't leave. Um, I just like lost my temper. It's fine. And those cycles of like what's typically called the honeymoon period of like, oh, I love you. Here's roses. Here's chocolate, whatever. And then, you know, violence or um, manipulation or whatever the negative period, I'll say um, those cycles become closer and closer together, kind of like you're going down a drain until it's all bad unless you're out with other people. Obviously, there's like, that's the very black and white mm -hmm. version, um, kind of textbook version. You don't quite see that here between Marge and Bill, but it's there. Yeah, you don't see it partially because like that's 
not how the plot ends up going, right? Like, no, if you want to see that, watch Gaslight. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. This, you know, because here Bill has this character arc where he's learning what is this human thing called love, right? Yeah. And as he becomes more affectionate, that's right when Marge learns who, what he is and uh, distances herself. Yeah, it, it gives, as I said, Bill this kind of tragedy where, like, yeah, as he's learning to love his wife, she's learning to fear him. So they are at, like, cross purposes, right? Um, but even that theme of, like, domestic abuse still, you know, plays into the wider theme of men as monsters. Um, yeah. and And the fact that typically, like, the police uh, have, even if they are trying to help you, it's very hard to still help you out of a domestic violence situation, not even to mention the rates of domestic violence within the police force. Sure. And, you know, this is why, like, scenes like Marge talking to Helen and, and having that scene are important thematically to this as well. Like, this is why I'm really here for this interpretation, because there are just scenes that don't seem to really be necessary without it. Like, this thing of, of Marge going to Helen and being like, hey, you're about to get married. I got married. Have you considered that maybe marriage is bad actually though? Um, because you know, her husband's a monster and she doesn't know whether Sam is a monster or not, but he could be. Mm -hmm. Um, and she even says, don't call off the wedding, just postpone it. Yeah. Don't rush into it. Yeah. You know, and trying to create something of a whisper network with the other women in town, which ends up not working. Um, it's probably honestly the only unrealistic thing about the movie is that like Marge is the only woman who notices like something's up with her husband because the aliens definitely like target a cohort of men who are all like just got married or about to get married. So they all have these new brides. Right. I mean, I guess that makes sense because if they targeted dudes who'd been like married to their wives for like 50 years, I mean, a, you're not probably going to get as much procreation action as you want, but, <laughs> but also like there's a higher chance of someone being like, well, wait a minute. That's not like you because they know each other's habits, you know, better. Um, yeah. But yeah, like I have to give like a lot of praise to Lewis Fitz, um, who wrote this script. I guess I can see why he was protective about it and like why he was protective about like the specific language that's used in certain scenes. Because like, yeah, I suppose this is a man writing about the fears of women in like the 1950s. And that's like really unusual mm -hmm. um really interesting and yeah i think the subtext is handled really well because the allegory like works all the way down the line um ultimately there are other allegories that can be applied like homosexual themes or other gender politics themes but the proto-feminism take really hits the hardest with this one um because it works on every level because the other thing that's happening here is they're trying to get babies out of these women. Yeah. And so this is a race they, um, Bill even says that like on Andromeda, their two genders like didn't come together except for breeding. So they didn't have love on their planet, which is why, what is this human thing called love? And so they only view the women as being good for making babies. And that brings us into, you know, again, like a proto-feminism sphere of talking about being in a small town and your husband only wants you 
so that you can pump out kids. He doesn't care about you as a person in any other way. And there's nowhere for you to go and no one for you to turn to because that's just how society works. And like nobody sees a problem with this. Well, I will say that this is one place where the script struggles because it's made clear that Marge does want kids. She wants to be the housewife at home and stuff. And for the record, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a stay-at-home parent and have parenthood be your job because it literally is a job. But with I think that part kind of fumbles a bit in the script is that Marge's fear is more about birthing monsters than about birthing babies. Right. But I think what works about it is that even if you want kids, you know, a lot of people want kids. There's nothing anti-feminist about no, no, wanting no. kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's about like a husband who doesn't see you as anything other than a baby factory. Yeah. Like where it's like this person isn't interested in being a partner with you. He's not interested in you as a person. He's not interested in like anything about you. You are just a baby factory, right? Yeah. And so, yes, she wants kids, but she probably wants like a loving partner who's going to like, you know, be a father to their child and like, rather than just sort of having a very dismissive um, view of her. Uh, and, you know, the movie's very good at portraying how trapped Marge is. Like, mm -hmm. a lot of these movies that we've seen with similar plots, like alien invasion, mind control replacement plots, sometimes really struggle because they need to create a world where, like even the movie that this is on a double bill with, The Blob, they need to create a world where nobody is listening to the main character yeah. until it's far too late. The Blob makes that seem reasonable by having the main characters be teens who no one takes seriously. Mm -hmm. And this movie makes that reasonable by having the very simple fact of just making the main character a housewife in the 50s. And so it's like, yeah, no one takes her seriously because no one takes housewives seriously, period. And, you know, all of that stuff of like, well, why don't you just go to the police and stuff um, is translated really well from the reality of like a domestically abused partner to uh, a woman trying to let the cops know about the alien invasion mm -hmm. in her small town. I will say uh, kudos to her doctor for mm. believing her yeah. um, and like taking pains to listen to her, um, taking her reproductive health seriously. Yeah. Though I will say, so part of the tests that he runs to make sure she can, you know, have kids is an x-ray. And I was like, that's weird. Uh, because in my experience, it's been ultrasound stuff, right? So that got me curious. The ultrasound was invented in 1956 mm. and used only for like medical things. So I don't know if it would have entered like general practice or like people going like, oh yeah, that machine, they use that to look inside people. Right. Like just the writer might not know what an ultrasound is. Exactly. Yeah. Sure, yeah but also point. it's a small town. So maybe they wouldn't have had it, but yeah. I, I was just like. I don't think x-rays can check if you can have kids because they just check yeah, bones and masses. And unless he's checking to see like, you know, oh, you have a fucked up spine. If you get pregnant, your body will collapse in on itself from the weight. <laughs> yeah. Um, Though I suppose I wouldn't be able to uh, show us a pap smear <laughs> in a 1950s 50s. movie. Yeah. So that's, that is the thing here, right? Like um, this is basically the ultimate... They've come for our women 
movie, it makes the subtext of so many other monster movies into text, but it is still mildly handicapped by the fact that they are still like just not able to frankly talk about sex on camera. They hint at it as hard as they can, right? We've got the creep trying to pick her up. We've got the fact that like, there's a sex worker, right? We have a sex worker, Francine. Um, we've also, you know, know that she's going to the doctor to try and figure out how to have kids. And part of the like retroactive horror of that is like, that means they fucked. Yeah. Like, like Marge isn't stupid. She's not going to her doctor and being like, doc, the stork hasn't arrived yet. Right. <laughs> like, so clearly they're having sex. It's just that they can't quite say it. Like, Sam, after he gets taken over by an alien, you know, he's talking to the other men who have been taken over by aliens and they're all like a bunch of sad sacks because I guess like they're allergic to alcohol. So they all go from being guys who drink constantly to not. The only guy who isn't taken over, the one who has the twins later is like, you guys used to be fun and come out drinking with me. And (laughs) now you're stuck at home because of wives and the old ball and chain. And little does he know it's because they're aliens. Um... (laughs) But like, <laughs> does he know? But, but Sam is having a ball. Yeah. With so he's talking to the other aliens, and you know, whereas Bill's learning what it means to be in love, Sam is learning what it means to be horny. Basically, yeah. like he's like, "Hey guys, like, have you tried it though?" Because there's this one dude who's like, "I hate humans. This body is disgusting." And Sam's like, "Nah, dude. Like, have you tried it though? Like, it can be quite fun." <laughs> Um, so, you know, but they don't actually come out and say like, what is it that's so fun, Sam? So I think that sort of handicaps it mildly, but honestly, it transcends all of those other, they came for our women movies because it's choosing to show the horror from the POV of the woman who's being threatened rather than like the cuckolded man who has to go and rescue her and like defend the honor of like English males or whatever. Like nobody cares. American males, Ben. Well, you know, I'm thinking of Jonathan Harker. Um, nobody cares about Jonathan Harker, right? Like if it's supposed to be scary, make it Mina's POV. Right. Um, and we see like other female POVs in this movie. We see other women characters like Helen or Francine, the sex worker um, showing us a variety of other points of view on the dangers of men than Marge's right. Like Helen is just like, you know, maybe there is something to worry about with Sam here, but we've been dating for ages and I just need to get married because I cannot go become a career woman. I need you know, to go be married and have this guy. Yeah, she's older, which I think is an important thing that we haven't really talked about. She uh, would be like spinster age, whereas Marge is like 20. Right, yeah, like Marge is is clearly like a very young woman, exactly. And Gloria Talbot is very good looking in this movie. She also is a great actress. Um, Better here than in Daughter of Dr. Jekyll, but that's, you know, fair. Um, Yeah. But uh, then we have Francine, who is, you know, shown that because she's a sex worker, she is at the most risk from the monster men because she has to go and like proposition them. And basically what happens to her, like she hangs around the bar that a lot of the movie takes place in and, you know, makes passes at people. And then when it becomes clear that all the men in the bar are like, you know, aliens and they're weirdos, she leaves the bar and there's a dude in a trench coat. Uh, like he's Raphael from the Ninja Turtles <laughs> looking longingly at a baby doll in a toy store window, which like 
if you think the movie wasn't trying to give the aliens pathos, like, nah, that, that scenes proves that they do, but she goes up and she's trying to like hit on this guy and like pick him up. And then the alien turns to her. She sees it's an alien. She screams, the alien zaps her. She gets ray gunned. Right. But that is showing you the idea of like, she is at the most risk. Exactly. Um, so I think the allegory like really works, um, all through this. Absolutely. Some last things I just want to point out. Uh, we've kind of kind of already talked about this, but Gloria Talbot and Tom Tryon are the real MVPs of the movie, though no one is weak. Yeah, I think. Um, I just really like the dude who plays like the smiling police officer. Chilling. Yeah, yeah. He does a really good job. He's good. Yeah. I will say, uh, so many dogs die. Yes. I, at first, I was like, more dogs than humans die, but no, they're humans win by one yeah two out of three dogs die in this movie um and a cat right can't forget that poor cat and i will say that it's a less horrific ending because the invasion is averted sure it doesn't have the ending of like invasion of the body snatchers of like you fools you listen to me yeah, it's not an ambiguous ending. There's no question mark on this. The aliens are like, oh, damn, they killed five of our dudes in a small town. We better turn our entire fleet around, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, Bill and the others are all alive. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. I, I kind of felt like the like, ah, uh, OK. Like, yeah. I get why they're still alive. But also, oh, yeah, it would have been a, a better horror movie tragedy if like, no, the men are dead and the aliens are wearing their bodies as skin suits rather than yeah. this whole thing of like, oh, actually, they're Absolutely. fine. Yeah. 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 Um, but overall, really good movie. Yeah, I really, really liked this. So, so let's look at ranking. So I have to admit, Sarah, I'm looking kind of high for this one. Mm-hmm. And I'm worried that I might be looking too high. Well, I'll be honest. I had a really hard time trying to figure out where to even go. Mm. Um, I first started by looking at the blob. Okay, fair. Makes total sense. It is ranked at number 41. And I was like, you know, I really do feel like I Married a Monster from Outer Space should be in the top 50 somewhere. Um, but where is where I had the problem? So I felt, you know, it could definitely go above the blob. Um, At 50 is the Screaming Skull. And I'm like, yeah, this is better than the Screaming Skull. So that's kind of why I was like above 50. For sure. Yeah, I think that like I can absolutely understand why in terms of like going to see a movie at a theater, the blob was the bigger draw. Like it is way more fun and it's, you know, big and colorful. And And teens. Yes. But I think in terms of um, which movie has held up better it's I Married a Monster from Outer Space because it's about something in a way yeah. that like the blob is about something. It's about how like teens and cops need to like learn to respect each other and get along. It's just that that message hasn't aged as well as all men are monsters and you best watch out. Yes. And to that end, I was then also drawn to Murders in the Zoo. Right. Ranked at number 24. Um, now, long time listeners, because this was episode 39, will recall that Murders in the Zoo was quite powerful to me with its themes of domestic violence. And it it's brutal. Yeah, it's a gruesome movie, um, which makes the really out of place uh, comic relief even weirder. Yeah. So it 
you know, there is a conversation that could be had about, you know, does Murders in the Zoo really deserve to be at 24 on the list? But regardless, I kind of came here and I was like, well, you know, like I married a monster from outer space. It, there were moments that I was like, oh, like with the dog. But there weren't moments that like really had gut punchy feels to me. Okay. Like Murders in the Zoo. Because that movie, like you said, it's very gruesome. Whereas I Married a Monster, it the theme is there for sure. But it's like, I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is it didn't hit me as viscerally. But like I said, like I, I, I had a really hard time. So I kind of just, you know, settled at around this area. Right. So 24 to 50 is the range here. Yeah, I guess you could say that. So my range is entirely above yours, cool. um, but the gap between our ranges isn't that bad. So as I said, I felt like this is probably the best version of they've come for our women that we've seen. So I was looking at comparing this to other movies in that specific subgenre. Mm-hmm. Um, the highest ranked of which is Horror of Dracula at number six, because that's what Dracula is about as a story. Yeah. The thing is, there's other metrics to rank Dracula on, right? Like, is this the best adaptation or is this the most creative adaptation or is this like the best vampire movie or like, what about the gothicness? Like a lot of other things to think about other than just the coming for our women thing. But um, because I felt like this movie does a much better job of being about that than the Dracula's we've seen except for maybe Nosferatu because Nosferatu is the closest Dracula we've had so far to being from the woman's point of view so I thought maybe this goes above Horror of Dracula okay um which would make uh the ceiling here number five it would be coming in at number six right and then I looked down through all of these high-ranking movies and I found at number 21 Dracula uh and I was like yeah so if this could be better than Horror of Dracula it probably is better than dracula um so i made dracula my floor so my range was 6 to 21 which means that the gap between our ranges is 21 to 24 dracula night of the demon macabre and murders in the zoo well let me put something towards you um the other movie that i kind of started thinking about was the diabolique at 18 that uh, has like a manipulative husband who's controlling <laughs> the strings behind the scenes um, by pretending to be dead, but actually trying to scare his wife and succeeding in scaring his wife to death. Yeah. I think La Diabolique is probably better because even though the bad guys getting caught by the cops at the end is a bit out of nowhere um, and really makes the cops look like the worst fucking people because they basically wait for the wife to die so that they have a murder to charge on these people. Um, the wife does die. Our lead character, our identification character, our Marge in that movie dies. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could also have just said it's in the Criterion collection, <laughs> but I, I completely agree. So let's look between La Diabolique and Murders in the Zoo. Macabre it also has a weird marriage thing in it, like where the husband is a piece of shit. Yeah, and is controlling everything. Um, it does have some like, what the fuck is he doing? Because his daughter is like, quote unquote, missing and like is trying to scare the grandpa to death. Yeah. By having like a spooky skeleton in the casket. I think the problem with Macabre is that it's just a little bit too convoluted. Like, yeah. 
I Married a Monster from Outer Space is like about a thing. It's about marrying a monster from, from outer, outer space. space. It is, yeah, it is fucking, it does what it says on the tin, and it <laughs> is about that thing. Like, it is about marrying a monster. So I think it's better than Macabre. I, I kind of even think it's better than Night of the Demon. Yeah, the special effects, I think, are very comparable. Um, obviously, there's like a lot more to Night of the Demon in the sense of like building the like stop motion thingy, but like the integration is really well done. I concur with you about how this movie compares to Dracula. Um, but then we have the Frankensteins, Ben. Mm-hmm. Oh, so like, yeah. Is this better than like Bride of Frankenstein? It starts to get really hard to figure these things out when we're in these areas of the list. Yeah, what I'm going to propose to you is part of the reason why Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein are this high is because they are originating parts of the genre, mm-hmm. right? Frankenstein with sci-fi monster movie, it fumbles because it's early horror and there's like a lot of like that weird comedy stuff, um, which also is comparable to like the ball and chain comedy yeah yeah the way really the is. dad is yeah i married a monster isn't really originating anything yeah. it's doing stuff we've seen other movies do like i said like a half dozen times by now it's just found a really effective way of doing them by shifting the pov to the person whose pov it should be and we even talk about how bride of frankenstein you know yes it's originating that mix of queer camp goth whatever but a lot of people will see the horror as like oh the bride screaming at the end when really it's like oh we're stuck in having to be heterosexuals yes (laughs) i want to propose to you that we put i married a monster from outer space between bride and dracula because yes, it's not originating uh, a new subgenre or whatever. It's doing it really, really well, and that subgenre that it's doing is better accomplished here than in Dracula. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I think I can do that. So, slotting in at the new number twenty-one is "I Married a Monster from Outer Space" from nineteen fifty-eight, directed by Gene Fowler Jr. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can follow us on whatever app you use using our RSS feed. If you'd like to give the show a hand, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or a review on your podcasting app. That helps people find the show because it tells the algorithm to show people the show. If you don't want to trust algorithms, um, if you trust like good old fashioned flesh and blood humans, you can do the work of (laughs) letting people know about the show yourself by telling a friend about the show, whether that's through social media or just, you know, in person, um, because speech is not yet owned by a billionaire. So maybe that's like the way to go. And if you want to help us become billionaires, then you can head over (laughs) to patreon.com 
patreon.com slash scream scene podcast where you can become a creature of the night for as little as a dollar a month doing so helps us pay our hosting fees it helps us take the time out to do the research and the recording and get the films for the show each and every week and we just really appreciate the support it helps us know that what we're doing here is appreciated. And uh, if you join at any level, then you can vote in our monthly polls to determine our horror-adjacent bonus episode each month. Um, the latest one just went up on Calling Dr. Death, the first of the Inner Sanctum mystery movies starring Lon Chaney. There'll be a new poll up on Patreon to vote for our May horror-adjacent bonus episode. So if you want to check all that out, head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. So Ben, what are we watching next week? Well, Sarah, um, I thought I'd just float an idea by you, which is um, I'm going to have a really busy week next week. I have a lot of stuff on my plate and I thought maybe we could kind of take a break from doing a regular episode this upcoming week, but just to make sure that our creatures of the night are not um, totally devoid of our presence, I thought we could tackle an appeal request uh, that's been sort of sitting on the docket for a while. A listener has sent in an appeal on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is Ooh. our number one ranked movie. Yes. So taking the time to discuss that and do an appeal episode for that film. Um, And then the week after we can get back on track with our regularly scheduled programming, which is a Hammer competitor movie from the people who made Blood of the Vampire uh, called The Trollenberg Terror. (laughs) Is it about a trolley monster? No, I assume that Trollenberg is a place in England or something. Okay. (laughs) I mean, maybe it is a trolley monster. I don't know. We'll find out. It's Jimmy Sangster. Okay. Good old Jimmy. Uh, Well, regardless, we will still see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.